Welcome back to our study of Martin Chemnitz in Caridian. We're looking at predestination or election today. We'll be picking back up on page 85 with question 177. Before we begin, let's have an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so once more by way of reintroduction, we had covered question 176 on page 85, and therein we see this kind of uh, twofold aspect of predestination and election. Viewed from certain angles, it is what Chemnitz refers to as a puzzling mystery. And in many respects, trying to solve that mystery, trying to render it not puzzling, will just lead one into contradicting the scriptures. But the secondary aspect of the doctrine of absolution, or the doctrine of election, is that it's profoundly comforting. So it is viewed from certain angles, a puzzling mystery, but from its primary purpose given to us by God, it's extremely comforting and accords with the doctrine of justification in the extreme. Because again, in short, the doctrine of election says before you were even born, before you did anything, God elected you unto salvation. Your works are entirely precluded. Your entire person is precluded by the doctrine of election. Picking back up then at 177, here's the question or statement. But some at times speak about and discuss this article less circumspectly and not without offense, whereby pernicious thoughts are stirred up in the minds of many, which thoughts give occasion for security and impenitence or despair. You can imagine how that would be the case. Well, if I'm elect, then I'm elect. I can do whatever I want. God can't stop me. (laughs) He made the mistake of electing me before the foundations of the world. So that's security. And impenitence can go right along with that, too. Why would I need to repent? I'm already elect. Why would I need to clean anything up or do anything I don't want to do? I'm already elect. And despair is really the other side of the coin, by and large, and that is, well, maybe I'm not elect. Or if everything's taken entirely out of my hands, then it's up to God, and I, by nature, don't trust God. He doesn't think the way I think. Things that I think are good and bad, he doesn't seem to agree with. So it's from that sinful fallen vantage point, God appears to be capricious. He appears to just be, uh, you know, may as well have flipped a coin for whether I'm going to spend eternity in hell or eternity in heaven. And if so, why would I even want to be born? And why would I want to exist in such a world? So profound, profound despair 
and despairing thoughts can come from a misunderstanding, a wrong understanding of election. And that's the statement here posed to which Chemnitz will speak. Doctrine divinely revealed and taught in the scriptures is by no means to be abandoned or rejected because it is abused or misunderstood. But corruptions are to be prudently separated from sound doctrine and rebuked. And abuse is to be guarded against by earnest and diligent warning. But if some who are admonished nevertheless want to abuse true doctrine, their damnation is just. Romans 3.8 Many conceive fanciful thoughts from this article about predestination and fabricate the conclusions Since God predestined his elect before the foundations of the world were laid, Ephesians 1.4, and the predestination and purpose of God can neither fail nor be hindered or changed for any reason, Isaiah 14.27, Romans 9.11 and 19. Therefore, if God has predestined me to salvation and life eternal, nothing shall hurt me even if I persevere without repentance in sins and transgressions, despise the word and the sacraments, and concern myself little about contrition, faith, and piety. I will be saved since the foreknowledge and predestination of God never fail. But if God has not predestined me to salvation, nothing will help me. Even if I hear the word of God, repent, and have faith, since I cannot hinder or change God's foreknowledge and predestination. So here are two really fruitless ways of thinking about the doctrine of election or predestination. And that indicated because they both fight against very clear passages of scriptures. That's the obvious tell. Second paragraph from Chemnitz. Pious minds are also often disturbed by this kind of temptations. I don't know what's going on there with the grammar. So that even if by the grace of God they had repentance, faith, and good intent, they nevertheless sometimes fall into these thoughts. If you are not predestined to salvation from eternity, everything you do is in vain for that reason. These speculations often increase when we look at our own weakness. The example of those who did not continue in the way of piety, they began, but fallen headlong into sins again, have fallen from grace. So again, it's this sort of idea, this mixture of pagan fate, that whole concept with salvation. Like, well, sure, I believe now, but... The outcome's already known, and many others have fallen away, so who's to say I won't? And this kind of, again, that tends toward despair and the despairing category of sin. Kenneth continues in the third and final paragraph under this question or statement. That false view and those pernicious thoughts are to be countered with this firm and immovable principle Since all scripture divinely inspired was not given to stir up, nourish, or strengthen security and impenitence in us, but to be profitable for reproof, rebuke, and correction, 2 Timothy 3.16, 
And since likewise the doctrine of the divine word was not written aforetime for us, in order that faith might be disturbed (laughs) or be led to despair, great point, God didn't give us doctrine so that we would so that our faith would be disturbed or so that we would be led to despair, but that through patience and comfort of the scriptures we might have hope. Romans 15.4 Therefore, that is beyond all doubt, neither the sound meaning nor the proper use of the doctrine of predestination, when by it occasion is either given or seized for security and impenitence or for doubt and despair. And scripture itself does not teach the doctrine of predestination in any other way, sense, and purpose than that by it, it might lead us to the divinely revealed word. Ephesians 1, 9, 1 Corinthians 1, 21. Exhort to repentance, 2 Timothy 2, 19. Incite to piety, Ephesians 1 and John 15. Strengthen faith by consolations, and make us sure of our salvation in Christ. And then there's a number of references given here in Ephesians and John and 2 Thessalonians. So again, Camnet's pointing out to us what should be obvious and is when you go looking into the scriptures. The scriptures never present the doctrine of election as, okay, everybody, there's this thing you need to be aware of, God's elected some people to go to heaven and some people to go to hell, so good luck. Not once in all the scriptures, but rather the doctrine of election is used to comfort the saints. That so certain is our salvation that God didn't leave anything in our hands. He didn't leave anything to chance or contingency. Rather, before the foundation of the world, before you were even born, he elected and chose you. That's how sure and certain your salvation is, and chiefly because he is good and you are not. He is faithful and you are not. He's steadfast and you are not. And he's taken the whole equation out of your hands and put it in his good and gracious hands. That's profound comfort. And that's the way it runs and works in Scripture. Um, possibly the only other place you see it working is um, when you if you sort of peer into this and can't fathom the mystery, the logical inconsistencies of our limited and fallen minds, it does give occasion to stand in awe and in pious fear of God who is so far above us and who has not disclosed to us such majestic mysteries. So that's that's about the only other kind of consideration you might find in the scriptures in regard to the doctrine of election. But that's a minor point relative to the great comfort intended by God. Let's pause there, see if you have any thoughts on this question 177 and the answer. I know know that this topic has come up before and you've addressed it before, but it's... God wants the whole world to be saved, and, and there's the doctrine of election. And, and it always goes back to, especially when you're having a sincere question or a, a sincere uh, dialogue with an unbeliever or somebody who wants to challenge that, what about the poor people in deepest, darkest Africa? Mm-hmm. Or more closer to home, what about your neighbor? You know, uh, their upbringing, maybe they were raised 
without God and and how is it their fault that they if nobody told them and and I know we're commanded to just, to not worry about that and share the word and and be faithful etc but mm-hmm. I don't know I don't know how else to ask that Sure. So a, a counter question, even if only to yourself, to delve a little more deeply, is what would I do with that information if I had it? Why am I seeking that information? And if you're honest with yourself, as I've been honest with myself, the only reason is because I want to weigh God on the scales. I want to know if he's just and fair or not. That's why I want to... I, do I, do I really care about the salvation of the Bushmen in Africa as much as I'm pretending? I suppose if I did, I'd already be on a plane and on my way there to preach the gospel to him. What, do I, what am I really interested in? His salvation? I'm really interested in judging God and finding out if, I, if, if his system is acceptable to me. So... This is why when Jesus is asked questions that kind of go right around the doctrine of election or are there many who will be saved or why these and not those and that kind of nexus of questions, Jesus never responds by, well, let me explain it to you. (laughs) Jesus will do things like tell parables where the questioner finds himself outside of the wedding feast with the door shut. What's Jesus' point in that? I think we could summarize and say, you have enough to worry about in regard to your own salvation, to be worried about the salvation of others or the justice of God. So in short, it's way above your pay grade. (laughs) Right? So Jesus will, will... without fail in these instances, respond not by saying, okay, well, let me explain and defend God unto you. You have a right to sit on the judgment seat and judge God, so let me, let me uh, defend God unto you. Never once. So let me tell you a story about how God judges you on account of your sins, and you're out. Now what's the response? Repent. So Christ everywhere says to all our probing and judgment of God, simply repent, worry about yourself, and it will become clear. And really, truly, it has for me. I mean, you know, as a theologian, you study these things, you wrangle over these things, you worry about these things, you think about these things. How am I going to defend God to other people and, you know, this kind of thing? And ultimately, the answer is God doesn't need me to defend him. God doesn't need anyone to defend him. It's so far above my pay grade, it's not even funny. I'm concerned for myself and my family as a layman. As a pastor, I'm concerned for myself and the people under my charge. And other than that, it's a sort of general concern. But I am an employee of God, so to speak. Right? It's like I don't have to defend the boss you know, for his decisions and whatever he wants to do. Plus, I've learned this about God that he's better than I am. He's more gracious than I am. He's wiser than I am. He's more true. He's more beautiful. He's more simple. He does everything well. He does everything right. How's my track record? So who am I to say this person should get in and that person shouldn't get in? And I mean, I'll I'll even push this really personal. I think about the salvation of my own children. 
Think about the salvation of my own spouse. Think about the salvation of my parents and my siblings and people. There's no, there's no people dearer or closer to me um, on earth. It's the same answer. I pray for them to be saved. I'll do everything I can for them to be saved. I want them to be saved. I'll weep tears over them. But at the end of the day, it's God's business, not mine. And whatever, whatever is decided is going to be right and good and just because that's who he is. And I'm not going to sit there and, oh, yeah, God, I know better. Again, what's my track record of knowing better? <laughs> my life is a track record of sins and failures and spiritual stupidity and blindness. How am I ever going to dare to sit in judgment over God? So those are, those are the kinds of things. And if you were looking for a kind of proof text for that, not that you are, Paul's close to this in Romans 9, where he's like, um, you know, who are you, oh man? And talks about the uh, profound mysteries and unknowability of God. That's Paul's way of, of just humble yourself, repent, right? So anyway, does that kind of... some. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. At the moment you're having this discussion with somebody you really care about and feel for. Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah, so I mean, truthfully, I'm a I'm still a student in process there. I haven't quite mastered the replication of our Lord's argument. I, I mean, ultimately that's where I want to get when some loved one says that to me, I want to effectively do what Jesus does, which is, "Hey, repent." <laughs> yeah, all right. Now, the how of getting there is, is where the, the rub is and the challenge is. Mm-hmm. Isn't there a, a, Paul talks, but isn't there a difference between general revelation and specific revelation? Mm-hmm. Because Paul talks that people know there is a God. So the deep, dark pygmy it knows there's God. <laughs> So, yeah, right. so when they answer that question, there's they, they, a general revelation that through creation that there is a God. Specific would be who his name is, which is Jesus Christ and all that. So, because I think that's what Paul talks about, isn't it? That, hey, they Absolutely. have general revelation, so they know there's a God out there. Exactly. So there's no excuse. Exactly. I mean, not the without specific. excuse is the exact line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's exactly right. And that's, you know, we in our evangelistic endeavors, you know, my shorthand way of memorizing or remembering this is um, just like remembering that we have the high ground when we talk to people, that they're, they're denying and rejecting God who's revealed himself to them in countless ways. It's not a, otherwise you kind of go in with this assumption that they're neutral. They're not. They're at fault. They're actively resisting God. And, I mean, it doesn't mean you're not gentle to them or kind or winsome, but that's the reality. Uh, and, and then that also keeps us from the sort of pandering used car salesman, like, how do I you know, urge you into this? How do I get you to do the least possible? It's just, no. Who do you think made you? Who do you think made this place? You know darn well. And you know darn well by the fact that you're going to die that he's displeased with you on account of your sins. A God who can make the beauty that we see in this world is going to bring you to an end in the ugly worm, worminess and rot of death. You think he's pleased with you then? Clearly not. These things are self-evident to you. So the hope we have 
is this same God gave us his son, etc., etc. And the and then right there, then you're at the death of Christ, who bears your sins, and the resurrection of Christ, who is not only making you but all things new. So that's where ideally you want to be, um, and as close as you can be to the crucifixion and resurrection. You know that's where the real argument is. Yeah, this keeping the high ground of recognizing that God's right and everybody else is wrong. <laughs> and everybody, everybody else knows it deep down or they're completely self-deceived. But that's their fault too. So, in a charitable way, wake up. And that's, yeah, that's St. Paul in Romans. Um, those who have the law are condemned by the law. Those who don't have the law are without excuse because they have the law written within their conscience, accusing them or excusing them. That's exactly Paul's point. Okay, a hand was back here first and then up here. I wondered what the difference is between security and assurance. Yeah, it can be a distinction without a difference, but if we were to if we were to make a meaningful distinction, assurance is faith that grasps hold of God's word and believes that it's true on account of God's word. So assurance is always asking the question, did God say, does God lie? Did God say that he's washing away my sins, that I am his child in baptism? Yes, he did. Does God lie? No, then I must believe it. That's assurance. So I'm certain, but that certainty is predicated upon God's word. Um, Security is different because security will say like, hey, I'm his no matter what, and so the gospel becomes licensed to sin, or really, it's re- I mean, it's a complete inversion, isn't it? It's a satanic, antichrist inversion, because one uses the gospel to fuel unbelief. How do you, how do you, uh, how do you repent of that? Um, because every time you hear the gospel, you just go, yeah, yeah, that's permission for me to do whatever I want to do. That's permission for me to sin. So that's the kind of security if you really want security fleshed out, if you look at the minor prophets, well, not just the minor prophets, all the prophets, the prophetic age in Israel is the age of mass corporate security. And the mission of the prophets is sent by Yahweh is to go, what are you doing? Because they think as long as we keep offering, you know, this is where God even mocks them, like through Jeremiah. I think we just heard this in an Old Testament reading a couple weeks ago. Because they'll say the temple, the temple, the temple of the Lord. Like, hey, this is, you know, this is covering all our sins so we can go on sinning. And as long as we have the temple and as long as we have the sacrifices, God's at peace with us. No harm will come to us. And, and Jeremiah and the other prophets are, are going, are you crazy? Just using that stuff as a blanket and an excuse and the very thing that predicates all your wickedness and unrighteousness. You, th- you think that God doesn't see that? You're crazy. So that, um, you know, that rings home in the, uh, in the New Testament in a really astonishing way in 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul talks about Israel being baptized in the Red Sea. Why would he use that language of baptism? Then he talks about how Israel ate spiritual food and drank spiritual drink. Why would he use that language? Because he's drawing a parallel to we who are baptized and we who commune. 
His whole point is that though these people of old, God's people of old, were baptized and had a spiritual meal, nonetheless they displeased God by their conduct. They didn't continue in repentance, but grew impenitent and used God's grace and mercy to predicate, ultimately, idolatry. And then Paul says these things were written for us. So the point being that even though we find assurance, as I just demonstrated a moment ago in baptism, assurance in the Lord's Supper, we must be careful that we don't slip into a kind of security. Hey, I can go live whatever life I want to live and fornicate and lie and steal and cheat and uh, not go to church and whatever else, but remember my baptism. That's, a, that's simply a Christian version of an ancient error, and it's condemned specifically by St. Paul in the New Testament. So that, does that kind of help flesh out a difference between assurance and security? Assurance good, security bad? Please. Okay. I've been through all these arguments with my brother. He just keeps on and on and on, arguing about everything. He wants to be heard with his own opinions, and I finally said, you know what? Faith is a gift. Mm -hmm. God gives us the gift of faith. And if you really want answers to all of this, I think you need to go to God and tell him your feelings and ask for the gift of faith. Mm -hmm. And then faith comes by hearing God's word. And I said... I'll, uh, I'll leave it at that. Great. And that's where we've cut it off. Yeah, great answer. Now he's starting in on my husband. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up because, Pastor, you just said there are those that read God's word And as they're reading the word, they only see reinforcements or proof texts for their own unbelief. Is that, I mean, how can we put that into our understanding of the Holy Spirit comes to us and turns on our light switch or grants us faith when we hear or read God's word? Is it different when you're by yourself with the Bible and your intention is to see what you want to see and then you don't even see what's written there? As maybe Janet was describing, my, I know my father is a perfect example of this. He brings out all the proof texts that are in direct opposition with what it actually says. Mm. So how can we, I mean, it says what it says, but mm-hmm. how do we understand about the Holy Spirit comes from the Word? Is it the person that's blocking it? Or, again, it's maybe it's back to the original conversation. Is It's God is God, and he's going to give faith to those he gives faith to, I don't know, how does that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. It, it seems to me that maybe the question, correct me if I'm wrong, is kind of almost exegetical in nature. Why is it that if God's word is true and clear and obvious, people have so many different interpretations or misunderstandings of, about it? And ultimately the answer there is our sinful flesh and false teaching that you know filters down and filters to us in unconscious ways and blinds and blocks us from seeing the glory of God's word, which in and of itself is simple and plain and clear and true. So it ultimately is a matter of, of um, our being mangled up in such a way that we can't see it. 
And sometimes entire theological systems will blind us to being able to see the clearness of God's word. I think the promise of God's word and the comfort of God's word is that as you, as you continue to study it, and yeah, there is, I think this is maybe what you were getting at with the intention, if you continue to study it as it is true, and I'm willing to let anything else hit the floor, even my theological system, I'm willing to let anything else hit the floor as long as I walk with that truth and know that truth and let that truth determine all things, that more and more and increasingly so, that truth wins out. Now, it, it's by degree, and it may differ from one person to another, one situation to another, but I think that we can expect that of God's word, that as the light shines in the darkness, the darkness cannot overcome it and recedes away, and that takes place in our hearts as we study his word. And, and yeah, there's some real helpful things like not having a magisterial use of reason where we're lording ourselves over the text. We've got to realize that while the Bible is literature, it's never less than that. It's always more than that. To submit ourselves to it, to believe it, to take it at face value. And here too, I think in, in the States, maybe my last comment, um, is here in the States especially, We've just gotten so far away from the idea that the Bible is the church's text. And we've, we've let academia get hold of it, and the, and the critics get hold of it. And that has proliferated in so many ways all kinds of different and contradictory readings of the scriptures. I even see that hitting the popular field in the History Channel. I always peck on but you can just as easily see it on all kinds of YouTube programs and all this stuff. That just It's all based on this sort of academic reading and uncertainty of the text. It's Western, as if Western academia isn't biased okay, towards certain outcomes. So remembering that the text is the church's text, and it always has been and it always will be, because God has given it to the church, is super helpful. Because you can get a general sense... I mean, it's re- we can argue about this proof text or that proof text on, say, the Lord's Supper. But the fact of the, of the matter is, like, something to the tune of 90% of all Christians gr- globally and historically have had no problem believing that it's the body and blood of Christ given and shed for the forgiveness of sins. That's what the words say. The church has believed it. So there's this, there is this great comfort we can take in the, in the fact that, by and large, the church testifies to the veracity of, of Scripture and the veracity of God's Word. So it's another comfort I think we can have. All right, anything else we want to talk, talk about on this uh, particular question? All right, let's zoom on. 178, here's the question. Yet is it true that God foreknows and foresees all future things? And this, his foreknowledge and foresight cannot fail, nor can anything take place without or contrary to his will. All right, so some of you will be able to see the way that, what, you know, what this question is setting up and the direction it's ultimately going to head. Here's Kemnet's answer. The ancients taught the true and profitable distinction between the foreknowledge or foresight of God and predestination or election. And on that basis, this whole matter can be simply and clearly explained, understood, and elucidated. 
For proper distinctions are by all means to be applied to the explanation of this article, lest the doctrine, otherwise difficult in itself, be more involved than obscured in perplexing confusion. Therefore God, to whom all things, future as well as past, are equally and presently open, foreknows and foresees all things that will come to pass, good as well as evil. And this act of God is called foreknowledge or foresight. But he foreknows and foresees evil things in one way and good things in another. He foreknows and foresees evil things, not in such a way that he wants them to happen by the good pleasure of his will. Psalm 5, 4 through 5. Nor is such foreknowledge and foresight of God a cause that affects, works, promotes, or aids evil. But the sole cause of that is the depraved and perverse will of the devil and men. But God foreknows and foresees the evil which that depraved will of man will attempt and effect out of its own wickedness, contrary to the commandment and revealed will of God. And he does not only foresee, but at the same time, in a hidden way and order, he sets bounds and determines how far he will permit the evil things. Likewise, when and how he would restrain and punish them. And a whole slew of verses there given. Okay, so what's the takeaway so far? Probably this line is the most helpful. Therefore, God, to whom all things, future as well as past, are equally and presently open, for knows and foresees all things that will come to pass, good as well as evil. That's the first point. So, God not being bound to time in eternity, all things are ever present unto him. That's the basis of his foreknowledge. So he sees all things as already happening. He knows it all. That's foreknowledge. But we can make a distinction in the first place between foreknowledge and causation. Okay, so God can, it's, it's one thing to foresee something. It's another thing to cause it happening, you see? Okay. And then we can make another subdivision that when we talk about causation, we can talk about cause of good and cause of evil. And heretofore, we've just been talking about the cause of evil and how it is that God can be said to cause evil or not cause evil. Not in a primary sense in any way. That would remove from us all culpability. We would cease to be moral agents. Say, how could he punish that which he works in us? To borrow a question from Romans posed by Paul. Right? So the point being that this would be labeled as the Manichaean error or a kind of deterministic or fatalistic error. Um, and we, those of you who are in for the reading on Thursday, we got just a taste of that in our reading as well. Okay, now look at the top of 87, and we're going to get the other side of the coin. So, again, we've made the distinction between foreknowledge and causation, and we've looked at causation of evil and how God is not culpable. He does not cause evil in the primary sense. His creatures in rebellion do. What about good? Good is different. Top of 87, but God did not only foreknow and foresee future good things, but he is their cause, and he affects, works, promotes, and aids them in us according to the good pleasure of his will. And in the church, this act of God is called predestination, election, or preordination, with regard to salvation and eternal life. 
So God does, in fact, cause good. And that's generally true, and it's more narrowly true when it comes to election. Now, already from this frame, you can see a distinction between God electing unto salvation and God not electing unto damnation. Two different categories of causation. One is God will allow people to go to hell. God did not create hell for them, but created hell for the devil and his angels. He will permit people to go there of their own volition. He causes no one to go to that place that he didn't even create for them. In the same way that he causes no one to sin. He created Adam and Eve to sin. He created Adam and Eve to dwell in the garden forever and to enjoy the garden. And among those, the chief crown and jewel of all his gifts, his word. Where he said, don't eat of that tree or you're going to die. Luther's so great on this point. He said, with that single word of God, they, we, they could have extrapolated everything that we know now and more. From the entire scriptures and everything else. And it's, I think it's true. You can actually have that mental game and play with it if you want. I think it's absolutely true. Okay, so that really helps us then see a biblical window into the doctrine of justification in an overarching sense. Now again, I, and, and you will find this in Romans but, and maybe a few other places. It's generally speaking not how scriptures speak of election. They, don't never, they usually don't speak of it as a system. It's usually a gospel promise made unto the church. It's usually how election functions in the scriptures. All right. Okay on 178. Yes, there's a hand. The, um, the way that you know you are predestined um, to be saved is that you are, is this correct, that you're already a Christian and the Holy Spirit has come to you and the Holy Spirit comes to you as a free gift, that was predestined? Mm, pretty darn close, yeah. I'm, I might just add a few modifiers. Now, we haven't quite got to that question, properly speaking. I'm happy to address it quickly here. Um, Chemist just hasn't quite yet treated on the question of how do I know that I'm elect. And, of course, the answer is not going to be, like, well, float up into heaven and see if your name's written on the book of life or somehow, like, mind-read God and know whether you are or aren't. God's election before time and space, which can't properly be known by us, is made, to, made known to us in time and space through the means of grace. To put it maybe just in more plain terms, it's not an accident that the gospel came into your ears and you believed. I know it seems from a certain earthly fallen perspective like these things happen by chance. Well, I was born into this family and this time and this place. How could it have gone any other way? And we somehow use that in the exact opposite way we should to sort of mitigate against the gifts of God. Like, well, I'm not neutral, so you know, I don't really know if that stuff counts. It was just by chance. No, it wasn't. It was by absolute design and intentionality. God chose to put you into a family or into life circumstances or into friendships or into a neighborhood where you would be exposed to his word and God saw to it 
that that word would not return to him empty. He has created faith in your heart. He has baptized you. He invites you to commune. That is his revelation unto you. None of this is by chance. And it can feel a little hokey. Sometimes I even feel a little hokey saying it because I'm not trying to do some woo-woo, dramatic, cause goosebumps thing. But when I look out from the pulpit, it sometimes strikes me that every single face is a unique miracle and an orchestration of God by which he's brought you there that moment. It's, even though it kind of sounds hokey and we want to dismiss it, it's, it's just nonetheless true. There's no accidents. It's all God's intentionality and purpose. I think it's very helpful to look at your life in a holistic sense and see the hand of God in it and see the hand of God working before you were even born to bring about certain outcomes in your life that are going to be for your salvation. It's absolutely the case. We can do that corporately as a congregation, and sometimes I've had opportunity to reflect on that, reflect on the different pastors, call it different points, the different uh, struggles and challenges and how those were uh, handled and dealt with by, by God through his people. And it's not a, there's no accidents. There's no accidents. It's all the hand of God for the sake of the elect. And you can start to glimpse that in life in ways that are really comfort, comforting and really amazing. But one of those things is don't, don't neglect or poo-poo or think that you're just a matter of, you know. So it's kind of like growing up, I mean, it's not really been a moment of my life where I haven't been a member of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. And people will tend to use that against you, even in, even in my own fallen mind for a time. I kind of used it against myself, like, well, how can you be neutral and blah, 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 blah. Well, nobody's neutral in the first place. There's the first error. And in the second place, like, you've got to, uh, when, when you look at life and you see that there's no accidents, you give thanks and praise to God. It, Paul says something, isn't it to Timothy? He says something about his grandmother and mother. Do I have it right? Is it Timothy or Titus? I'm always confusing the two. But that his grandmother and mother raised him in the faith and taught him the word of God, preparing him. This is what Paul says, preparing him for this moment of his ministry. Which is to say what? It wasn't by accident. None of it was by accident. It's not, there's nothing, there's none of this neutrality, quote unquote, that's worth a darn. God doesn't work that way. And God has biased all things on, for your salvation, even some of the hard things. And maybe even in ways that you don't know or certainly can't appreciate. I mean, I'm there with a few things myself, but nonetheless, I hold it to be true that God is good and he works all things for the good of those who love him. And that we love him because he first loved us. So all that to say, um, that's kind of a, a, an overarching and, and Maybe in, in some respects, just holistic answer. To be very specific, how do you know that you're elect? Are you baptized? That's God's eternal election made known to you in time and space. Does God call you to the Lord's Supper? Say, come. Does he say, take, eat, take, drink? That's his election. Do you think God is duplicitous? Why is he saying those things to you if he hasn't in fact elected you? You go, oh, well, people can fall away. Back to the earlier part of this conversation, we're not talking about people. We're talking about you. Stop obfuscating. Stop moving the goalposts. Stop flipping the frame. We're not talking about other people. We're talking about you. 
And that voice of God goes out to you. And of course, yeah, you can reject. Why on earth would you? Why would you entertain such a stupid thought? (laughs) So this is where theology really stops being academic or scholastic or a mental exercise. And it just becomes really very plain and very simple. God in time and space is speaking to you directly through his means that he's ordained. Stop obfuscating. Stop dancing. Believe. Okay, on to 179. How then can the doctrine of eternal predestination or the election of the children of God to salvation be grasped in a sure way according to the analogy of Scripture and set before the uninstructed that they may not be offended or disturbed thereby, but rather draw comfort and be improved? Answer, that kind of method is not only necessary for a minister of the church, but also very useful for any pious man to adopt a pattern according to which to conform his thoughts regarding this deep mystery and keep them within proper limits. For if someone approaches the article of predestination a priori, that is, from the hidden and inscrutable will of God, and believes that nothing else or more is to be considered in it besides these bare fancies that God in the hidden counsel of his predestination preordained and decreed only who and how many are to be saved, likewise who and how many are to be damned, or that he determined thus by some election as of a military nature, this one I want to be saved, that one is to be damned, Various absurd as well as dangerous and pernicious thoughts will surely arise thence. And quick pause here. Among those pernicious thoughts is, well, I'm clearly better than everybody else. That's why God elected me. And then simultaneously would be, well, God's capricious. I'm not better than anyone else. So the fact that God would leave such a thing to dice, as it were, to his whim on that one eternal day is, you know, that's crazy. I couldn't, you know. So that undermines faith because it undermines the character and nature of God. So those would be among maybe the two most obvious of uh, these kinds of pernicious thoughts. Picking back up, that is what happens if the human mind puts together a line of argument like this. If you are predestinated, no matter what you do, you will nevertheless be saved. But if you are not predestinated, you will certainly be damned, etc. Christ in the parable, Matthew 22, 1-14, and Paul, Romans 8, 29-39, and Ephesians 1, 4-11, teach that one must begin a posteriori, <clears throat> that is, from the divinely revealed word. For when that article is considered... They set it before us not simply in the arcane and hidden counsel of the Trinity, but as that mystery has been revealed to us in Christ, who is the true book of life, through the word in such a way that in the doctrine of this article are embraced the whole counsel and decree of the Trinity regarding the redemption of mankind through Christ, regarding the holy call through the word, 
and regarding the justification and eternal glorification of the elect, as that counsel of God has been revealed to us in Scripture. Therefore, he that wants to think and speak piously and circumspectly, according to Scripture, about the purpose, predestination, and election, or preordination of God to eternal life, he must together embrace with mind and thought these chief things which we have now set forth as being each included in the article of predestination. For thus the mystery of this difficult article can be most simply understood and most correctly explained. Therefore, God, foreseeing the fall of the first parents and the evils that were to follow as a result of it, decreed and determined in his hidden counsel, out of free mercy and love toward mankind. And now we've got, uh, looks like, eight different points. One, that and how he wanted to redeem and reconcile mankind to himself through the incarnation, obedience, passion, and resurrection of his son as mediator. So again, not to lose the forest for the trees, just to try to put it as simply as I can. This is what we believe about election um, on account of God's word, not account on our speculations. So we begin with God's word and go forward as opposed to sort of like beginning with our speculations about it and trying to infer those into the scriptures. Okay? And here then are the basic principles that obviously God foresees. He doesn't cause Adam and Eve to sin. In fact, he goes and speaks to them so that they would not sin. But nonetheless, he foresees that they will fall into sin. And thus, he plans before the foundation of the world. It's where the scriptures will say Christ is crucified before the foundation of the world. He plans before the foundation of the world for our redemption. That is, through the incarnation, etc., etc., Now, an important point, tangential to be sure, to Chemnitz, but really, really will open your eyes, I think in many ways, to the general revelation and the specific revelation. Before God said, let there be light, and began creating, he already had in mind our redemption in Christ Jesus. He already had in mind the love story of his son and the bride and the unfaithful bride won back and washed and made clean and restored. That is the template upon which creation, the general revelation, and the scriptures, the specific revelation, are built. Now, of course, that comes to us from the specific revelation of the scriptures. (laughs) That's how we know it's true. But once we know that's true, we have to believe it. We have to see that why does God make husband and wife? To reflect the deeper truth of Christ and his church. Why does God create things like shepherds and sheep? Why does God create things like doorways and paths? Why does God create all these things in scripture? Because they reflect who he is and how he is unto us. And this would give you a very different frame than reading scriptures if God's constantly talking down to us. These idiots can't understand who I am. You know who a shepherd is to his sheep? Yeah, that's kind of like how I am to you. And then all theology becomes analogy. All theology becomes metaphor. All theology becomes this impossibly high God who somehow yet can't speak to his people who he made. Absurdity, of course, but you see the point. So he's got to just speak to us in analogy and metaphor. 
it, it really turns inside out your entire theological frame. It's going to poison your soul. So rather than seeing ourselves as the center, God out there trying to talk to us through metaphor, see God at the center, knowing exactly what he's going to do in and through Christ and his church, and then creating everything, us included, to reflect that glory. So that, now, blinded by sin, we're not going to see it in creation. But enlightened by the specific revelation of Scripture, by the light of his word, we start to see in the general revelation that it was always there. Even in something silly like the sun rising and setting, as we say. Well, what's the sun? The great light from which we live. We see by it, we get in our warmth by it, everything else. In terms of the created order, no better resemblance to God. And yet, what does that sun do, as we just said? Every single day, in fact, our days are marked by its dying and its resurrection. So written into creation itself, we can't see it on account of our spiritual fallenness. But when the scriptures come and enlighten us, we begin to see the whole creation preaching and proclaiming Christ to us. Shepherds in the hills, the trees clapping their hands in the wind, the mountains skipping with their ups and downs, the whole world. So maybe you've reflected on this. Um, When we sing in the liturgy, heaven and earth are full of your glory. It's easy to believe heaven's full of his glory. What we're slow of heart to believe is that earth is filled with his glory. That's not on account of him hiding it, per se. It's on account of us being blind to it. All around us is the proclamation and the glory of Christ. All around us is the cosmic liturgy that is in harmony with the, the heavenly liturgy. That's So kind of in the same way that we're without excuse, we all know there's a God, creation further testifies to that, that all of creation is in harmony with God. All of creation knows its maker. Okay, so again, I know it's tangential to this conversation, but when we're contemplating God outside of time and space, before he said, let there be light and anything is made, according to Chemnitz, and he's right, we get this right from the scriptures, that God already had in mind, quote, how he wanted to redeem and reconcile mankind through himself, or to himself through the incarnation, obedience, passion, and resurrection of his son as mediator. Why creation looks the way it does. Okay, let's do the second point, and then maybe that'll be enough for today. Two, that he wanted to offer to mankind that grace of his, the merit and blessings of Christ through the ministry of the word and the sacraments, and invite guests to the wedding of his son through his ministers. And thus, in this world to the end of time, gather for himself out of lost mankind an eternal, an, yes, an eternal church in which he would offer and distribute those blessings of his through the word. Okay, so the whole point being, there's the cosmic wedding has been planned before he even said, let there be light. He's inviting us to it. He's inviting us to it. And there's kind of a twofold thing. He's not only inviting us to the, as if we were spectators, which is true, because it's the wedding feast of the Lamb and his church, but also as participants, because we are members of his bride, the Holy Christian Church. 
And so to do this, he sends his son, and his son sends ministers, and it's a great call to the invitation, and what he has in mind is an eternal bride, an eternal church, an eternal people of God. And that eternal people will inherit an eternal and new heavens and earth, an eternal and new cosmos, in which all things would be made right. Right down to our corporate social interactions, our individual selves, our interactions with one another, what we're able to do as as people as a human race in Christ. Um, and uh, as we, you know, I think in the same way, like, it's instructive, if, if even only by analogy, to see that God gave Adam and Eve uh, to tend to the garden and that their progeny would spread out throughout the face of the earth and that all of God's good creation would be perfected through the work of their hands. And if only by analogy, that can give us insight that when God makes the new heavens and the new earth, there's going to be stuff for us to do. There's going to be things to be engaged in. There's going to be um, not just things to passively experience, but things to actively do and engage in. There's going to be dynamism and excitement. And uh, God designs us um, in such a way that, that... Even as he is a doer and a creator, we likewise will be co-doers and co-creators with him. So it's his plan from the beginning, and that plan will continue on. Okay, I think um, we've got time if you have any questions or comments. Uh, Otherwise, I'll just wrap it up here. Not seeing any, so that's great. Let's... um, I'll I'll log off here of the microphone and then we'll pray and, and bless the food we're about to eat.